Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. You doing okay? Hello? <laughs> it's great to see you all this morning. I'm so glad to see you. If you're new this morning, a special welcome to you. I'm Barrett, one of the pastors here, and we are uh, really grateful that you have chosen to worship with us today. We began last week a new sermon series in the book of Philippians, and I told you how uh, flippin' excited I was to be in this book of Philippians, and that is still true. Uh, we are on a journey together in this book to know how it is that God truly wants our life to look like as his people. What is the life that is possible when we experience the life of Christ in us? How does his life in us change our lives? How are we to live and to grow and to mature in our faith. And uh, I hope that you uh, are encouraged and excited and are involved in studying the word with us uh, on a week-to-week basis, also involved in a small group. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1 today, and so if you've got your Bibles, perhaps you are already there from um, that encouraging testimony that uh, Joanna shared with us. Let me pray for us. Um, as we get into our scripture and our message today. Lord, um, I need you. We need you, God. So much. So much more than we even understand so much more than God we're willing to admit. But God, with honesty right now and with as much sincerity, God, as our hearts can bring, I pray, Lord, for me and for each person in this room, Lord, that we come to you in a place saying, God, we need you. We want you. Lord, we invite you into our hearts and into our lives. God, to make us the people that you desire us to be. God, thank you that you love us so much that you gave your one and your only son so that whosoever might believe in him would not perish, but have life, life everlasting. God, I pray that that would be real to every person here in this room today, that we would realize the joy of knowing you, Jesus and the joy of living, living because of your life in us. Lord, we need to be transformed from the inside out to be remade into the people you desire us to be. And I thank you, God, for your grace and for your power that is able through the living Christ to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Would you do that work today Would you do it for your glory and for our good? We pray it in the strong name of Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. Uh, Some of you guys know me uh, well enough to know a little bit of my personal testimony. Uh, Some of you guys may not. um, But perhaps my story, uh, I'll share just a little bit of... uh, of it might resonate with some of you, um, where you've been, perhaps where you are. Um, I remember a time in my life where, much like um, 
Joanna described this morning. I remember a time in my life where God was just not a part of my life. Um, I was a church person. I'd gone to church with my parents uh, for as young as I can remember. Some of you guys have that story. You know, you're like, your, your pastor basically birthed you. Um, that would be awkward. I don't want to birth any babies. But you grew up in church. I grew up in church. I had been a part of that, but never really had a true relationship with God. It wasn't really important to me. And I remember what life looked like. Um, I think I really wanted to think that I had a relationship with God. I would have told you probably that I did, but in my heart, it was the furthest thing from what I really wanted. It was the furthest thing from my true love, from my true passion, from my true purpose and desire. In fact, I remember um, in college, something's going on. I remember in college, just wanting to have a really good life. But to me, that good life looked all about me. Uh, I was pursuing an education and really wanted to be very good at what I did. I wanted a great job. And I wanted to be recognized as great in my field of study. I really wanted success. I chased Uh, pretty girls and being popular. I really prided myself on the way I looked and the way that I carried myself and the way that I dressed. I really cared very much what people thought about me. Um, I really loved money. I loved nice things. I loved nice meals. I loved, um, I loved living a very good, cushy, comfortable life. And to be honest, the ambitions of my life were really centered around me and centered around what this world could give me and what other people could give me. And I think I was so, I was just blind. I was blind. I, rem- I look back on it and I think, how... I, th- I think about myself in that season and I just think I'm, I was blind. But that's, if I'm honest with you, that's what my life was all about. I'll never forget, I, was in, I went to the University of Georgia and I was involved at a, a, in a college ministry there at the time that David Platt was finishing up. And some of you guys are familiar with the name David Platt. He's a pastor now in Birmingham, Alabama. But David was a part of the college ministry that I was a part of And I'll never forget that one of his messages there in the college ministry that I actually was a part of at the time, he came and he began to open scripture and the thrust of his message was the purpose of God. The purpose of God, that this life, this world is about God. And he began to talk about how what God desires the most is that people know him. Know him so well that they understand that we're created to enjoy him. His desire is that we might be caught up in just enjoyment of who he is and what he's about. And he began to unpack that. 
This is the rhythm of God from the beginning of the Bible to the end, from the beginning of history to the end, that everything has been pointing to God. And in the end, if you don't get this, and if your life doesn't line up with the rhythm, the heartbeat, imagine a big drum that just beats the glory of God, the enjoyment of God for all people. If your life doesn't line up to that, then you're missing it. If your purpose and your passions, if your desires don't line up to that, then you are totally missing it. In the end, it just won't matter. It's a waste. It's trifle. It's dumb. That if you have everything in this world, but don't have that and aren't a part of that, then in the end, what are you doing? You will be left empty-handed, ashamed on the last day. And I will never, ever forget that night because it was such a transformative night in my life that sitting in a row much like you're sitting in right now, I began to feel a total conviction of God because in that moment, there was nothing in my life that cared. I would have told you that I cared, but I knew in my heart there was nothing in my life that really, truly cared about God that really, truly was aligned with what he was about, that really even cared that he would be known in my own heart or known through my own life. There was nothing that lined up. And I remember just starting to crumble on the inside. And I think if you had been sitting around me that night, you would have seen me crumble on the outside at the realization that I was wasting it all. I was wasting it all. And I didn't want to. There was nothing in me that wanted to waste it. I I wanted my life to count for something great. I wanted to be a part of the things that mattered, the things that make an eternal significance. I wanted that. But everything in my heart and life was not aligned to what would actually bring it. And I didn't want to waste it. In that moment of honesty and in that moment of surrender, the trajectory of my life radically changed and the desires of my heart radically changed. I later read a book called Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. I don't know if any of you guys have read that book or heard of it. It has been a great tool in my own heart And then at near the same time, I began to study the book of Philippians. And I'm telling you, God radically reoriented my life. Radically. And a lot of what I'm going to share is just some of what God has taught me through these men, through these resources, and through this book. And I just want to pour it out to you today. But I want to ask you this morning, do you want your life account. Do you want your life to count? Do you want 
at the end of your life, for there to be an impact made that has a difference in eternity? Do you desire to be caught up into the things that matter? Do you? I believe that you do. But let me tell you this. That if you want your life to count, what matters is not that you come from a rich family or you have a great education or you have a good, comfortable life or you have a great family, a high IQ, or master many things. No, John... Piper says it clearly. Those who have made a durable difference in the world are not those who have mastered many things, but those who have been mastered by the one great thing. And they live and die to make it known. If you want the ripple effect of the pebbles of your life to go on into the edges of eternity, you have to give yourself to what really matters and you have to live and die for that some of you might sit in here and think I don't really care all I really want is a good job I want people to like me I want to have a good family. I want to be comfortable and healthy. I want to have good friends and to have that kind of community. I want to enjoy retirement one day. You know what? I could take all of that even without God and I would be happy. But let me tell you, friends, that is a wasted life. It is a wasted life. And I this morning want to plead with you by the Spirit of Jesus Christ that you might wake up from your small dreams. Wake up from just coasting and be set on fire by the Spirit of God deep within your heart for the things that really matter. Namely, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That you might be free from the petty crap of this world and the small ambitions of worldly success and comfort, freed so that you might live in a way that lives to make much of God. For in the end, you will see, whether you admit it or not, that only what He does and what He is about truly lasts. I want you to be free from the trinkets and toys and small dreams of this world, that you might live with abandonment, for him and for a lost and dying, hurting, needy world that still needs to know the hope of Jesus Christ. I'm praying that for you. And what I'm asking this morning is, is that something you want? I don't know of anybody in scripture that had this kind of life like the apostle Paul did. So as we go to Philippians 1 this morning, 
I want you to know that what you're looking at is a man who has this, a singular passion. If you'll just say that with me, that would be great. A singular passion. We saw last week that God's people are a changed people. But as we look at God's word this week, what we see is that God's people have a singular passion. And I don't know of anyone in scripture that could be a greater encouragement and example to us than Paul. Verse 12 of Philippians 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, they do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that... I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith so that in me you might have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. God's people have a singular purpose. There's notes in your chairs this morning and I pray and encourage you to follow along and to write the things down that God reveals to you today. There's not going to be a lot of things on the screen, but I believe the Holy Spirit of God is speaking today through his word, and I want you to pay attention. Can there be such a singular, all-consuming, all-satisfying purpose of your life that could unify everything that you do? You're sleeping and you're eating, you're changing diapers and you're going to work and you're fixing your car when it breaks and your friendships and, I mean, think about the normal course of your life. Is there such a thing that can unite all that you do, all that your life is about under one umbrella and under one purpose? 
such that there would be one God-glorifying, all-satisfying, all-consuming passion. Singular passion. The Bible's resounding answer is yes. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. One of the things that Paul said is, When I came to you, I resolved to know nothing and to say nothing other than Christ and Him crucified. What do you mean? You resolve to know nothing, say nothing other than Christ and crucified? It's all you go around, people say, Hey, Paul, how are you? You're like, Christ, Him crucified. What did you do last night, Christ and Him crucified? No, I don't think that's what he means. I don't think that's the only thing he actually said verbally. What he's saying is, I live and speak and set my life in such a way that there is one singular ambition to all that I do, and that is Christ and Him crucified. This is what the Bible says our life can be about. And this is what we see in Philippians chapter 1. Paul here writing from prison. Things are not going so well. Okay, let me just ask. If you find yourself in prison one day, is that a good day or a bad day? Some of you guys are weird. Have you ever... I'm not going to ask who's been in prison. What if you found yourself in prison for something that really... What if it's just you sharing your faith with your friends? You testifying to the grace of God in your life, like Joanna did this morning, and you find yourself in prison for that, that's a hard day. But look here at what Paul is saying. He says, I want you to know that though I'm here in prison, look at it, verse 12, what has happened to me has really served what? to advance the gospel. He said, in fact, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard. We believe that Paul most likely was in Rome. What he's saying is in all of Caesar's household, the gospel has been made known. And to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What Paul's saying is, look, I'm not really thinking about my circumstance right now. You might look at me and go, your life sucks. You're in prison. That's awful. Terrible. You, you, You had a great dream to live for Christ and now you're in jail. Man, that's too bad. That's a waste. Paul didn't look at it like that. In fact, he doesn't even consider his horrible circumstances as something to be counted as good or bad. Instead, what do you see him focused on? What he's focused on is whether or not the gospel has occasion for advancement through his circumstance. He says, you know what? It doesn't matter about my circumstance because I'm happy about this. I got in prison, and there's all these jailers and folks sitting around. They ain't got nowhere to go. By the way, if you're wanting to learn how to teach the Bible, the best place to learn is in prison. Because you just teach and teach, and they don't have anywhere to go if it's terrible, all right? What Paul's saying is, they're all a captive audience. 
I've gotten to share about Jesus to everybody here, even those who are in Caesar's household. And it is served to advance the gospel. It means people are coming to Christ. And for that, I, I get really excited. My suffering has caused people to know Jesus. So I don't really care that I'm suffering. What I care about is that Jesus is being known through my life. And he says, not only that, but because I'm in prison, there have been people outside of prison, people who are my friends that know me and know the faith they share, their brothers. They've actually become more bold to share the gospel because I'm in prison. That makes me happy. I'm suffering, but they're looking at my suffering and knowing that I'm suffering for Jesus with a smile on my face, knowing that that's a cost that I'm willing to pay, and they have become emboldened. And for that, I'm really happy. It's not about my circumstance. It's not about the season of life I'm in. I have a singular focus, and that focus is Jesus. So I want to evaluate the success of my life. I look at, has the gospel been advancing through me? And he says it has, and thus I rejoice. Now about those folks outside of the prison, verse 13. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or whether in truth, Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. And what he's saying here is this. He just told us that he's happy that the gospel is going out. But what he says is there's two kinds of people outside of the prison that are actually proclaiming the gospel. One is doing it out of love, out of desire for Christ and out of love for Paul to continue the ministry that had begun through him. And the other is doing it out of like competition. The other is doing it to kind of get at Paul. There's one group over here that sees Paul suffering for the gospel and they become emboldened to share because they love Paul. And they think, if he can suffer like that, I can at least open my mouth and share. Like the Christians that we saw in these last few weeks, I don't know if you watch the news or keep up with Voice of the Martyrs or the lives of the persecuted Christians, but right now in Nigeria, there has been some awful, awful persecution of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ for none other than that they proclaim Jesus with their life. They have been tortured, they've been persecuted, they have been killed held at the stake, burned alive simply because they hold the faith that many of you hold. I don't know about you, but when I look at that, when I look at how they lay their life down for the gospel, when I look at people like Kristen Hurtler, whose birthday is today, who laid her life down to go to South Asia amidst the people who could radically persecute her, when I look at people like that who give up everything for the gospel, it makes me want to open my mouth and do something, to open my hands and do something. You can't live a selfishly oriented life when you see other people laying it all down for Jesus. You gotta go, what's wrong with me? 
Are you with me? You ever feel that way? What he's saying is there's some who that happened to him. And he's saying, I'm so happy that others have been inspired by the suffering that I face. But you know what? There's other people over here who go, oh, Paul was a big leader. He attracted big crowds. He had influence. He had leadership. He had ministry. He's in prison now. Ha ha. Sucks for him. There's now a vacuum, and I really want people to follow me. I want people to listen to me. I want people to realize that Paul wasn't the best preacher. I could be. Out of rivalry, they began to preach in order to win people away from Paul, gain their own influence, and somehow in doing so hurt him by the fact that he's contained in prison. Now, in your life, you have people sometimes that are for you, and you have people that sometimes are against you. Just this couple of weeks ago, somebody came to me here in this church talking about a coworker that just seemed to be at them, just at them, want their throat. Everything they did just seemed tough. They were making life difficult. What Paul says, it doesn't matter to me what people think, whether or not they love me and have goodwill toward me, if I'm popular among them, or whether or not they're a rival to me, whether or not they want to get at me, hurt me, inflict me, it doesn't matter what people think about me. I'm not sitting here in prison going, oh, poor me, I wish I could be out there leading the people. He's not thinking about that. It's crazy. This dude is crazy. All of us would be sitting there thinking about that, I think. But Paul is a changed man who has a singular passion. He's saying it doesn't matter about my circumstances and it doesn't matter what other people say or do about me. It doesn't matter even the motivation. What I care about is this, whether or not Jesus Christ is preached. And if he's preached for that, I rejoice. It's not about me, it's about him. And if he's being proclaimed, even if I'm being dishonored, I will rejoice because it's not about me anyway. It's not about you. It's about him. The craziest of them all. I mean, this dude is crazy. In a, like, radically changed way. Something might have gotten a hold of Paul. That something being the Holy Spirit who also wants to get a hold of you. At the end of verse 18, his final thrust here, he says... You know what? Not circumstance, not whether people think about me. He goes on and he says, you know what? Yes, I will rejoice. I will rejoice. I will be happy. I will be glad. I will have a smile on my face. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Whether by life or whether by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means more fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. 
My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. What Paul's saying here is this. Not only is he in prison, but he's sitting on death row. He doesn't know the final judicial sentence that will dictate whether he lives or whether he's put to death. You ever had a crossroads moment in your life where you've got a decision staring in your face and you think it could go this way or it could go this way and they seem like radically different? You ever had those moments in life? And sometimes we convince ourselves that only this way is what would be best for me. Only this way is how God would choose to be glorified. Paul's sitting at perhaps the biggest crossroads moment in your life, his life. I don't know if you've ever faced it. Some of you have. I was with a guy this last week who was telling me that he was in the hospital in a near-death type experience. And literally, he didn't know if he would live through it or if he would die. Some of you have had that. Most of you haven't. But I want you to put yourself in that position. What Paul is saying is that here he is at a crisis moment in his life. But look at how radically changed Paul is. Check it out, the singular focus of his life. What he says. That his one eager expectation, verse 20. And his one hope is that he will not be ashamed. He's looking at this crisis moment, and what he's saying is, there's only one thing that matters to me through this. It's that I not be ashamed. That in the way that I handle the crisis moment in my life, I'm not going to be ashamed. Now, what's the opposite of being ashamed? For most people in the world... It's being honored. It's having people think good of you. When you're five years old and you're in the little Christmas play, all right, I'm going to be a five-year-old for a second, and you're down here singing, Jesus loves me, or whatever it is, the thing that makes you feel the, the most scared and ashamed is if you forget your line. Anybody ever forget their line in the Christmas play? Yeah, it's just terrible. What makes you ashamed about that is what? That you want your mommy to be proud of you, right? You want them to think that you're a great kid. If you're in a work environment and you think about what would shame you, what would shame you is maybe that your performance doesn't line up with the goals of your supervisor. That they would think ill of you, that somehow you wouldn't have honor anymore or integrity in what you do. What Paul says here, though, is crazy and that it seems so different than the way most people would answer what it is that they're ashamed about. 
He says, the one thing I want is not to be ashamed. But the opposite of a shame for him is what? He says, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ would be honored in my body, whether by life or death. What would make Paul ashamed in his crisis moment was that somehow he would act in a way that dishonored Christ. He wasn't even thinking about himself. It's not about his honor. It's about what brings glory to Christ. What makes him look wonderful. He says, for me, whether it goes this way or whether it goes this way, the only thing that I care about is that at the end, I'm not ashamed in the sense that I didn't make Jesus look wonderful through this. See, what we're ashamed about reveals what we love. What you're ashamed about reveals what you love. And for Paul, his singular love was the Lord Jesus. His singular love was living and dying in a way that he would be seen as wonderful and that others would know that he can be trusted. So the thought of what would ashamed him the most reflected what he loved the most, and that is Jesus. And then he says one of the most staggering things. It's the theme of our series, verse 21. It's the verse that I want you to try to memorize this week. I don't think it'll be too hard. It's been a theme verse for me in my life. He says, you know what? For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Uh, Paul, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, he said what he means. And it helps us understand the singular passion of his life. Here in this one simple statement, he said what he means. He said that if he's to die, it would be gain. For him to die is gain. How many of us view death that way? Paul, uh, if your purpose in life is to make much of Jesus, doesn't it seem like death kind of cuts off that goal? I mean, death is kind of like the closed door, man. Like, your life is not going to be able to continue to make much of Jesus. So I don't really get that death would be a gain to you. Anybody, I mean, that's kind of the question I have, right? Doesn't death seem to thwart the purpose of your life? If your purpose was not Jesus, then yes, it would. But for Christians, those who are in relationship with God, death doesn't thwart our purpose, it fulfills it. 
Death for us is like a car that you'll get in as you leave church today. Death takes us to where we want to go. Death for the Christian is a fulfillment of our greatest longing because our greatest longing for every true Christian is deeper knowing of God, pure, more intimate relationship with Him. And death for the Christian is a fulfillment, not an obstacle to our joy. In fact, he goes on and says what he means by death being gained. He says, look, verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. What do you mean, Paul? You mean it's far better for you to die? Far better than getting out of prison? Far better than going to the shop and getting new tunica? I mean, tunic and sandals? Far better than one more vacation to the Red Sea? Far better than more people following you and befriending you and saying, oh, Paul's such a great leader and apostle. Far better than enjoying a wife? Far better than having kids? Far better than enjoying retirement and endless golf by the seashore? Far better? Seriously? Yeah, seriously. Seriously. To depart and be with Jesus is far better for all who know Jesus. And if you can't say that today, you got some work between you and God you need to do. Because for the Christian, it is far better for us to be with God than to enjoy anything in this world. He can say, for me, to die is gain. And he can mean it. To know how to die is gain is the answer to know how to live is Christ. If you understand that to die is gain, to depart and be with Christ is far better, then you will be in a place where you realize that you don't need the stuff in this world to make you happy. What you need is God. At the point of saying to die is gain is the point at which you become stripped of all of this world and purely devoted in your heart and in your passion to Jesus Christ. And it is at that point of death to self, death to sin, death to selfish pleasure, death, death to selfish ambition, death to this world, it is at that point that you're ready to live is Christ. Because from that point, you can say that if I'm going to live, then I know that I'm going to live not for myself, not for my clothes, not for my sex, not for my money, not for my family, not for retirement, not for bigger, bigger, better, blah, blah, blah in this world. That is not the purpose of my life. The purpose of my life is Jesus. He's all I need. What I care about is him and making him known through my life. It's the secret, the singular passion. To live as Christ, he spells it out for us what that looks like. Verse 22, he says, it looks like fruitful 
labor for me. Verse 24, he says that to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. If I remain, I will continue with you all for your, your progress and your joy in the faith. What he's saying is, I know that if God chooses to keep me here, there's a reason for it. And it doesn't have to do with me. It has to do with him. If I live, here's why I live. Singular passion. Here's it, here it is. That I might live so that others could put their faith in Jesus. That I might live so that Jesus could be seen as wonderful through me. That I might live so that others would have joy in their faith. My singular focus is Jesus. Therefore, in my crisis moment, truly I can say that either way this goes, all I want is for Jesus to be honored in my body. This is a weird dude. But this is a dude who knows Jesus. And what he's saying is that this is what your life should look like if you know Jesus. God's people are a radically changed people because of his grace and mercy to rescue us from the pit, to set our feet upon the rock, to save us, to adopt us into his family and to call us his own. We are a changed people. But now because of his grace, much like Joanna said in her testimony, what happens to us is that we become people who have a singular focus like Paul. I want to live to know him more and to make him known. In my eating, in my drinking, in my work, in my family, in my schooling, in my career, in my decisions, in my love, in my relationships, in my money making, in my whatever you name, and even in my death, my one singular passion and joy is to know Christ more and to live and die in a way that makes him known. Paul was a radically joy-filled man and a radically free man because it wasn't any longer about himself. In any and every circumstance, whatever people said about him, whether it went this way or that way. It wasn't about him. Nothing would thwart his purpose because he knew that in everything, his passion was God's passion. And if it's God's passion, it would be fulfilled in him. Jesus said this, that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it will not bear any fruit. I'll go back to the question I asked you at the beginning. And the rest of our time today is for you and God. Do you want your life to count? 
at the end of your days, do you want your life to count for that which is eternally significant? Do you want to be found empty-handed because you gave yourself to everything but nothing that mattered? Or do you want to be found full because you gave yourself to the one thing that did matter? Do you want your life to count? Jesus says, wide is the path that leads to destruction. Oh, it's easy. It's easy to play the Christian game, to say that you're a Christian and to live like everybody else with really the name, but no heart, no passion for him. That's easy. Wide is the path that leads to destruction. But narrow is the path that leads to life. Those who find it, those who find it, experience what life is all about. The path to life is knowing Jesus and making him known. You don't have to be a pastor for that. You have to have a heart that knows that you've been radically changed by him, that your life is owed to him, and a heart that wants everybody to experience what you know in God. If you're not living with a singular passion this morning, what I want to ask you is why? Why why is it that you're not passionate about Jesus? Why is it that you can't seem to muster up genuine love and pursuit and purpose in him? Why? And the answer to that question lies in your heart. Perhaps this morning you don't savor him because you've taken all that he gives for granted, thinking that somehow it's deserved, somehow it's expected not remembering that you're a creature. Nothing is deserved to you. And that on top of that, you're a sinful creature. You forfeited all rights. You're a rebel of the king. Do you not sense this morning, deep, that you've been saved by grace and that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Do you not sense the radical joy of knowing Jesus who is everything? If you're not passionate, I need you to spend time this morning of why. Why? For the rest of us, there's some deaths that need to be died this morning. I believe that there's stuff in this world that holds you back from living the joy-filled, purpose-filled life that God wants for you. And the end, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I need you to evaluate this morning. What keeps you from the singular focus of living for Jesus? To know him and to make him known. Perhaps you're a student this morning whose ambition is all about yourself. It's all about your career. It's all about your money and your family and your girl, whatever it is that's driving your life. If that's you this morning, stop wasting your life and give yourself to Jesus. Confess it. 
repent of it and say, I want to be about you. Perhaps you're a couple this morning that struggled with moving toward greater worldliness, more success, more selfishness, more, just more of the typical American dream. And this morning, you need to come together and say, you know what? We need to live even more radically focused, singularly passionate about Jesus Christ. I don't know where you are this morning, but I know that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it will not bear much fruit. The way to live is Christ is to know that dying is gain. I believe the Lord wants to do radical things through your life, things that count, things that matter. Some of you guys have been thinking about missions for some time, and what holds you back is the thought of all the things that you might miss if you go. Listen, that's not a loss. The things you leave behind are not a loss. Saying yes to Jesus and the radical call to take his gospel to all nations, that's a gain. That death is a gain. Go ahead this morning and die that death. Go ahead and say yes to give up everything for the sake of Christ in the way that he's calling you. I'm telling you, God's doing something in your life right now, and you need to be aware of it. Let me pray. You're going to spend time with God in these next few closing moments, asking him to make you more singularly passionate about what matters, his gospel, than ever before. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you, God, for the joy, for the joy of knowing you. Lord, I sense this morning, God, that you are doing something. You are doing something here in this church, Lord. You are with us today. Jesus, your grace is everything. You loved us and you gave yourself for us. God, help us to see, like Paul, that I am crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. It is Christ who lives in me. Help us to see this morning that our life is not about ourselves, it's about you. And help us to lay down whatever stands in the way, whatever selfish pursuit, selfish dream, selfish desire, worldly mess, sin, whatever it is, God, that stands in the way of us being radically focused on what you are about, knowing you more, making you known. God, help us to lay those things down. Help us to know the hope and grace offered right now at this moment for everyone who will just say, yes, yes, God, I lay it down. I'm here. I want you to remake me. I want you to reshape me. I'm saying yes. I'm laying it down. I don't know what it means, but God, I know that this is what you want for me. God, change us. Call out a generation who's willing to live and die for you. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.